Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. With the discovery of the New World, European empires fought for control of the vast, mysterious continent on the other side of the Atlantic. Italy, Spain, France, and England in turn. But none of these superpowers planted the seed that would eventually grow into the United States of America. Instead, it would be small handfuls of persecuted migrants risking their lives in search of one thing, religious freedom. Perhaps no one group would leave a more lasting impact on the future nation than the people simply called the Pilgrims. They were poor. They were outcasts. They were enemies of the state for their refusal to submit to the Church of England. They had to borrow money for the voyage. Even their benefactors took advantage of them. They wanted to worship their God as they saw fit, without fear, harassment, intimidation, lawsuits, imprisonment, or death. But they persisted until they were able to create in the New World a haven for religious freedom. But what the Pilgrims did in Plymouth is absolutely amazing. Not only did they start self-rule, they started free trade, capitalism, land ownership, all in 10 years with 51 people. So the shadow they cast was an amazing shadow. And that was Leo Martin of the Jenny Museum, which is a historical museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. You're listening to News in Focus, a broadcast of the Ohio Christian Alliance, and we want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. It's been 402 years since the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, and we're going to celebrate that this program. And as we continue in this country to give thanks to Almighty God for all of his gracious gifts. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We're going to learn about the pilgrims, that group of separatists that came to New England shores 402 years ago. And we're going to learn about how they uh, established a a colony of religious freedom right there in Plymouth and made friends with the Native Americans that were there and began to evangelize them. And, of course, they became their brothers and sisters in Christ. They didn't come to exploit. They didn't, they didn't have slaves. They came to work the land and to carve out a new life in the new world for religious freedom, and God granted them that. We're going to hear from Leo Martin, who is the director of the Jenny Museum, in fact, the Ohio Christian Alliance will be, and Christian Alliance of America will be leading tours this coming year up to Plymouth. You'll want to stay tuned for that. We'll give announcements in the new year of how you can join us for a wonderful time in a season of touring Plymouth, Massachusetts, and the Boston Freedom Trail. Uh, Leo Martin, we met him a handful of years ago and his wonderful wife, Nancy, and they have what is called the Jenny Museum. It was first started in 2001. And then uh, the, with the old grist mill right in downtown Plymouth, and they began the historical tours. 
We're going to be listening to uh, Leo Martin as he gives a 20-minute presentation, and then I'm going to close us out with some closing thoughts on this Thanksgiving week, and I pray that this would be a blessing to you. Here now is Leo Martin of the Jenny Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Welcome to Plymouth, America's hometown. Established in 1620 by the pilgrims when they came here from England to start a new life based on biblical law. But to tell the story, we need to really know what the pilgrims were all about. Back in the 1600s, the pilgrims had a little problem with a gentleman back in England by the name of King James. What's the problem they had with him? He was the King of England and the head of the Anglican Church. When King James set the law in England, he set the law for everybody. Everybody in England sat under the same rule of law, except King James. He was above the law. He didn't have to follow his own law. Not only that, if you belong to his church, the Anglican Church, and you wanted to pray, knock your lights out, pray all day long, as long as the subject of your prayer was King James, he thought he was God, divine right of kings. Kind of rubbed our pastor the wrong way. John Robinson, the pastor of the pilgrims, took his folks out of the Anglican Church, and they had church in their homes. In other words, the pilgrims separated from the Church of England. That's why we're called separatists. Another group back then, theologically similar to the pilgrims, stayed in the Anglican Church and tried to purify it from within. We call them the Puritans. They came 10 years later and founded Boston. But folks, this is a very big difference. Because when John Robinson did that, separated from the church, he never wanted to see one person in charge of everything ever again, like the king. So he had his congregation elect him, pastor, not appoint him. Appoint him, you can't get rid of him. Elect him, you can dump him. But you know what that did for us? That started self-rule in our country. The result, the Mayflower Compact, the first document to self-rule, where we elected John Carver, the first freely elected official in the United States. Of course, the question is this. Where in the world did John Robinson come up with this self-rule thing in the first place? Back then, there was no self-rule. Everything was tyrannical. He came up with it when he started reading the Bible. And in the Old Testament, he came across a little passage called the Dominion Charter, where to take dominion over the earth, over the animals, birds, fish, things that creep and crawl. But he also read this, not each other. You see, Robinson read, we're all made in the image of God. Well, if we're all made in the image of God, then no human being has a right to be above another human being without their consent. Self-rule, civil government, is a biblical principle. You cannot have civil government without biblical law. And the way I like to explain it to people is this. Want me to be king? Happy to do it. I'll take the job. And you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to set the law. You know what I'm going to do next week? Change it in my favor. But I can't change God's law. Without that truth, without that constant, you cannot have a civil government. So what is the story with these people? Let's back up a little bit. Back in the 1600s, where they had that little problem with King James, and King James thinking he was God and all, uh, they separated from the Church of England and started church in their homes. And they started a church in a town called Scrooby, England. And when they did that, they wrote a covenant called the Scrooby Covenant, where they would honor and love one another under God as king. Now, here's the thing. You could belong to their church if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. See, you had to belong to King James's church. If you didn't in England, you would be persecuted. But you didn't have to belong to the church in Scrooby, the Covenant Church. 
But if you're going to belong, follow the rules. And the rules were biblical law. We were a, a biblical congregation under God with biblical law, and we elected our officials. So what this does initially is take the power out of the hands of the leader or the king and puts it into the hands of the people. Because if you don't like what's going on, you cannot elect those people. So the Scrooby Covenant was the first document like that. And, and, and what happened then, because they separated from the church, they were persecuted and they were forced out of England and went to Holland for 12 years where they could worship freely. Well, while in Holland, the congregation grew to over 300 people. When they came here 12 years later, their pastor, Pastor Robinson, had to stay back with the majority of the congregation, and a gentleman called William Brewster, the elder of the church, came in his place and did all the preaching. But he was not a preacher by trade, he was a printer. And while he was in England, he printed materials against the Anglican church. That did not sit well with the king. Brewster had to jump on the Mayflower and get out of town. Had he been caught, he would have been imprisoned. Unfortunately, his partner, Thomas Brewer, did not make it. Spent the next 14 years in prison where he died. But the pilgrims did make it. In their first project in Plymouth, they built a common house, a building they would share. That's where they would hold town meeting and church. But as you can imagine, when they arrived, there was nowhere to stay. They stayed in the common house for the first winter. Well... That common house had a thatched roof, caught a spark, and it burned. All the pilgrims got out on time, nobody died, but they did rebuild the common house, finished it in the spring. And that is where in 1621, they signed a peace treaty with the Indians. That lasted 55 years, the longest lasting peace treaty with the Indians in our country's history. We're all equal in the sight of God. That means the Indians. And so we treated the pilgrims, the Indians, just as equally as we treated each other. And we signed that peace treaty and had a close relationship with them for 55 years. All under biblical law. Where do you come up with something like this? You come up with something like this when you exercise the, big, the most important commandment, love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. See, because if we don't love We'll take advantage of people. Give you an example. When the pilgrims originally came to Plymouth, their economic situation was communal. That, of course, means that everybody at the plantation worked in the same field and grew their food. Then at the end of the season, they simply evenly split with each other what they produced. Sounds fair enough? Oh, and of course, it didn't work. And I'll tell you why. If you and I both went out in the field of work, you worked hard and I did not, I would still be paid what you were paid. There was no reward for hard work. 102 came on the Mayflower, 51 died the first winter. The first three years, they all almost stopped. Why? They didn't produce. There was no incentive. But from 1623 on, they never had a problem. What changed? The way they did business. 1623, the governor changed to land ownership. Now every family owned their own land, grew their own food, and fed themselves. Then they simply traded with each other what they had left over. Folks, we call that free trade. That worked. Never had a starving day after that. They tripled their production. See, even people who are Christians need to be checked on. We're all sinners. We all push the limit. So we need to be checked on. But what we really need to do is to love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. That's what we need to do. 
See, now, here's the issue with the, with the young men at the plantation. I'm an old man, and I'm crippled. Now, if there was a young man at the plantation and the governor went up to him and said, hey, young man, you go help that old guy and you give him your stuff because he can't fend for himself. I don't care who you are, you'd resent that. You do not want to be told what to do with your stuff. On the other hand, if we left him alone to produce the best he could on his land and he did well, I would be willing to bet he would help that old man voluntarily because he's not being told what to do with his stuff. So what we need to do is we do need to check on each other because we are all human, but we need to love one another. We need to be there for one another. See, see land ownership is, is a really big deal in Plymouth. Uh, and look, I sit on a river right here in Plymouth. Uh, and back then, we had a tribe of Indians in Plymouth called the, called the uh, Wampanoag Indians and their chief Massasoit. But we did have another tribe here in Plymouth called the Pawtuxet Indians. Pawtuxet means small river. They were named after our river. Now, before the pilgrims came here, hunters would come from Europe, hunt and go back home. On occasion, uh, they would invite Indians aboard their ships to trade with them, capture them as slaves and take them back to Europe. One of those Indians' name was Squanto. Squanto was a Pawtuxet Indian. Now, he was invited aboard a ship by a hunter by the name of Hunt. Well, Hunt took him back to Europe. He escapes to a monastery, learns English. Six months later, uh, he comes back on another ship to discover the Pawtuxet Indians, his tribe, wiped out by a plague. He went into mourning with Massasoit and the Wampanoag. Six months later, the pilgrims arrived. He became the interpreter between the pilgrims and the Indians. That is the only way they could communicate. Governor William Bradford did refer to him as a special gift from God. But why do I bring this up? Because when people come to see me, they assume the pilgrims stole the land from the Indians. They did not. The Indians did not want the land. They would not come back on it because of the plague. So the pilgrims took land nobody wanted. Everything after that they paid for to the chief, Massasoit. Guys, this is very important. If we can't own property, we have absolutely no power. Whoever owns the property we do business on will be our master. We will be their slave. We have to have the ability to own property. And the number one property the pilgrims believed they owned and nobody had a right to touch was their conscience, what they believed. Folks, what you believe is your property. Nobody has a right to take it from you. And that's why the pilgrims came to Plymouth. There was a gentleman back in England trying to take the property of what they believed away from them. They would not allow it. They came here instead. And of course, that gentleman's name is King James. And when you come to Plymouth, you, you have to understand how things were done differently under biblical law. See, we signed the Scooby Covenant, came to Plymouth, and in Plymouth, we wrote a law called the Mayflower Compact. Now, the Mayflower Compact was another covenant, a civil co covenant, where we would form a government, a civil body politic, with Jesus, God, in charge, with biblical law. So the covenant is an umbrella that brings everything the pilgrims did together because their textbook and everything they did was the Bible. So if you look at the Bible and you get principles to raise your family, to build a political system, to build an economy, it all comes out of the Bible. And when you follow that and you stay under the covenant, you're going to be great.
See, God is a God of order. And when you put God's principles in place, you're going to see order. Now, if you take God out of the picture, he no longer is king. He no longer is on his throne. You're going to have disorder because you just remove God from the picture. And I think lately today, if you notice what's going on, we have a little disorder going on. That is because today we're moving away from the covenant with God and we're not putting God on his throne. Now, what this means, if you're going to remove God from his throne, if you're going to take him out, something's going to fill that void. It's going to be there. And what's going to fill that void? Well, back in the 1600s in England, King James filled the void. King James felt he was God's representative on earth as the king. Well, if you're going to think you're God's representative on earth, eventually you're going to think you're God on earth. And he had everybody have to go to his church and worship him. But the pilgrims wouldn't do it. They wanted to worship Jesus Christ and they separated and started their own church. Now look what's going on today. If you want God gone, he's got to be completely gone to fill that void. And who you fill that void with? The state. And today the state is trying to become God. The state wants us to worship it. Look what's happening. Let's take a hypothetical. Let's say for the past couple of years we had a pandemic. And during that pandemic, the state was telling us what we could do. For example, they told you you could go, go to Walmart. You could go to Home Depot, you could go to the package store, but you couldn't go to church. You see, they were moving church from the picture and removing God from the picture. And once you totally eliminate God and the church, now the state step takes over and the state tells you what you can do and what you cannot do and you've just lost your liberties and you've just lost your freedom. You are not going to be free or, li or, or have any liberties without God being in charge, without biblical law, because I'll tell you what. If it's not biblical law, where's the law going to come from? It's going to come from people. Here's an example. You want me to be king? Happy to do it. I'll take the job. And you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to set the law. You know what I'm going to do next week? Change it in my favor. But I can't change God's law. Without that truth, without that constant, you cannot have a civil government. And that takes commitment. Commitment to the covenant. If you were to come visit me here in Plymouth, I'd take you to a statue downtown called the Pilgrim Mother. Uh, the statue representing the 18 married women that came on the Mayflower. See, when we originally left Europe, we had two ships. One called the Speedwell, one called the Mayflower. We owned the Speedwell, we leased the Mayflower. The Speedwell picked our friends up in Holland, brought them to England, met the Mayflower, and came over. When they left England, the Speedwell leaped twice. They had to sell it for half what they paid for it, lost their investment. Twenty of the original passengers had to stay behind and they left late. When they landed on the tip of Cape Cod, they had run out of food. The men looked around the Cape, found a stash of corn buried in the ground by the Indians and they took it. They did not steal the corn, they borrowed it, they paid it back later. Had they not taken the corn, they never would have survived because you see, by the end of that first winter, they were doling out a quarter pound of cornbread per person per day to survive on. So as you can well imagine, the mothers took their bread and fed their children. 
they cover their children with their own bodies to keep them warm. Of those 18 married women, 14 died the first winter, sacrificing for the next generation, knowing if they did not survive, we would not survive. And written on the back of that statue, it says, they brought their families in a sturdy virtue and a living faith in God without which nations perish. And while the women were making that tough decision, the men were making another one, hold back some of that corn. If they had no seed for the first season, nobody would have survived. They called that the starving time. And I'll be honest, when I tell that story, an awful lot of people ask me some difficult questions. One of those questions is, why in the world would these people do what they did? What would cause the pilgrims to do this? Another question is, how do you pick 20 people to stay behind when your boat leaks? They didn't have to. 20 volunteered. You see, those first two starts were very rough. 20 had no problem staying behind. One of them was not William Bradford. When that event took place, William Bradford said this, like Gideon's army, the Lord thought us too many for the task at hand and cut our number down. And he got on the boat. In other words, he was saying, if you're not committed, stay home. And at the end of that first season, when Captain Jones got the Mayflower ready to go back to England, he turned to the 51 remaining pilgrims and he said to them, I want you back on my ship. I'm taking you home. I cannot leave you here. Not one got back on. But I will tell you this. When that boat disappeared over the horizon, those 51 remaining pilgrims fell on their knees and they wept. The last bit of civilization as they knew it just disappeared. So again, the question is this, why did they do it? Folks, they did it for you. They did it for me. They did it for posterity. They did it to pass that biblical law to the next generation. And now that's what we need to do. And that's why I'm so happy with homeschooling. If our country's going to be saved, the homeschooling movement is going to save it. We need to pass to the next generation what they need to know. Look, I told you folks, we signed a peace treaty with the Indians. We signed that peace treaty with a gentleman called Massasoit, the chief of the Wampanoag. Back in the 1600s, the Wampanoag lived right here in Plymouth and on Cape Cod and in New Bedford and in Rhode Island. He was chief of all of them, very important man, but he was also our friend. Without him signing that peace treaty, the pilgrims would not have survived. But also keep this in mind, three years into that peace treaty, Massasoit was at his camp in Rhode Island. The man had the plague, he was dying. A gentleman from Plymouth by the name of Edward Winslow, once governor, put some herbs together and Ed Winslow walked to Rhode Island to nurse Massasoit back to health. Winslow walked 40 miles. Halfway there, he was met on a path by an Indian who told him not to bother finishing the trip. Massasoit died. Well, he finished the trip anyway, and he discovered Massasoit had not yet died. He was very close, and Ed Winslow nursed him back to health. From that day forward, they were great friends, and that peace treaty was even stronger. Now we'll move ahead 50 years. 50 years later, we had the King Philip War. King Philip was not a European. He was Massasoit's son. His Christian name was Philip. He went to negotiate not to go to war with the then governor of Plymouth, Josiah Winslow, Edward Winslow's son. While they're negotiating, Philip said to Winslow, he says, hey, I'm a chief. You're just a governor. I'm not going to talk to you. I'll only talk to kings. 
They broke off the negotiations and went to war. From that day forward, Philip was referred to as King Philip because he would only talk to kings, and the two men who became great friends, their two sons went to war a generation later. That biblical education skipped that generation, and what was the result? The largest percentage of population was killed in the King Philip War than any war in our country's history, and it could have been stopped. That's how important education is. That's how important us passing to the next generation biblical law and the reason our country was founded on biblical law as a Christian nation. I want to thank you for what you're doing, and I look forward to you passing to the next generation what we need to know. Thank you, and God bless you. And that was Leo Martin of the Jenny Museum presenting about the pilgrims in Plymouth, Massachusetts on this Thanksgiving week. We hope that's been a blessing to you and your family, and we pray for you that you would give thanks to Almighty God, again, who all gracious gifts come from Him. Well, uh, we're going to be listening on the backside of this program. The next program will be Cleta Mitchell. Uh, she was on the program last week, and we're going to be talking about the election and the outcome, and Cleta's going to lead us through what happened in some of the battleground states of really why there wasn't the red wave that many were anticipating and that we're going to have to get the work on the ground in these battleground states for the 2024 election. Here on the other side is Cleta Mitchell. Thanks for listening. In the Army National Guard, soldiers serve part-time and close to home. My community means everything to me. It helps shape me into who I am today and is where I choose to raise my own family. That's why I joined the Army National Guard. I'm proud of where I'm from. And as a soldier, I get to give back to the people that helped me succeed. The education benefits I got from serving helped me get my degree and jumpstart my career. The training and leadership skills I've gained from the Army National Guard help me every day when I teach young people, help my neighbors, and look out for my community. I know that when my neighbors need us the most, my fellow soldiers and I will be ready. My family loves it here and my part-time service means we get to stay here. Serve part-time in the community you live in as a proud member of the Army National Guard. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Johnette Cruz, and I'm a busy mom. Then a friend told me about TrustBlueReview.com, a new website powered by the Christian Blue Network. She uses it to find trusted Christian-owned businesses. I checked it out, read the helpful reviews, and found a great family dentist. Now I use TrustBlueReview for all my family's needs. For peace of mind, do what I did. Visit TrustBlueReview.com or download their free mobile app from your app store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Review. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue the following is a previously aired broadcast. Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance, 
Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us. We're going to be talking about the election returns that are still a week out, still coming in in the states out west. Uh, Ohio, of course, the election was determined on election night, uh, probably by about 10.30 at night. Uh, most of the returns had already come in. And, and the decision desk, of course, for Ohio at the Secretary of State's office, it was pretty much determined as it was in other states. But when we look at some of the states of, of question, we look back at the 2020 presidential election. Again, it's the states of uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada. Of course, you have California, Oregon, and Washington State, uh, Alaska, and Georgia with a runoff, of course, now uh, between uh, uh, the two Senate candidates there. We're going to be talking about that. But uh, we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the suspicious. And because there is been, there has been, of course, a lot of questions again with this election, and that does not bode well for our representative form of government and elections in this country. People have to have confidence in the election process, and when there is this drawn-out process of counting the votes or uh, terrible problems with uh, election machines, and uh, that they've had in Arizona once again. And again, these are blue states, meaning uh, the Democrats are controlling the Secretary of State's office and in some of these counties, uh, and also in Nevada, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, and left a lot of people scratching their head as to what exactly happened. Uh, in a midterm, uh, there, I think we need to look at this has been the worst response of the party of uh, opposition or the party that's out of power uh, in a midterm, and I think they've said something, I forget how many years it's been, a long, long time that they've had this poor of a showing at the at the polls uh, after an election in the midterm. Here to talk about that in all the detail is Cleta Mitchell. Cleta, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, Cleta, you were on with me uh, last year. We talked about after 2020, that there was a lot of states moving forward to shore up their election laws and process with a lot of the problems that happened in 2020. Of course, we also had the district redraw uh, in many states because of the uh, census of 2020. Uh, we had Adam on with us who basically walked us through that process of, of the district uh, redistrict redraws as we had here in Ohio. That certainly had an impact as... Uh, there's only 10 Republicans heading back to Congress and five Democrats. So the Democrats in the state of Ohio, the red state of Ohio, I might add, the, the Republicans swept the statewides, the Ohio House, the Ohio Senate. Uh, but when it came to the congressional races because of the district redraw, and let's not forget that it was Eric Holder and Barack Obama that was filing these lawsuits repeatedly in red states, uh, you can actually score them a couple of victories because instead of bringing back a minimum of 12 Republicans from Ohio to go to the new Congress, uh, we are minus two, we're, but we're down to 10. It's a 10 to 5 margin. So Ohioans uh, saw that we lost a congressional seat. We went from 16 to 15, and the Democrats had uh, three seats to the Republicans, 12 prior to the redraw. Now they have, pit, they have basically picked up two congressional seats in Ohio. So score one for Barack Obama and Eric Holder in that regard. Now, that, that story's not done yet because now uh, 
Uh, one thing that we did make sure is that the Republicans swept uh, the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, we had a problem with Maureen O'Connor joined the Democrats uh, in the district redraw uh, process. That created havoc. And because of that, uh, you know, we lost two Republican congressional seats that uh, won't be represented in uh, Congress this, uh, this go when uh, we're all waiting still to see if the Republicans will actually take the U.S. House of Representatives. It seems like they're hanging on uh, the number of 2017 as this program airs. Your thoughts on that, Cleta? Well, that's a lot to unpack, but I will just tell you that I watched that Ohio Supreme Court acting as uh, in lieu of the legislature. It started behaving as though it was a legislature, a legislative body, and not a judi- not the judicial branch of government. There's no authority for our state Supreme Court to draw, uh, to, to basically say, well, we don't like the districts, so we're going to draw our own districts. I mean, there they're really uh, that was a really reprehensible action on the part of the state Supreme Court in Ohio. And I'm glad that they, uh, some of them have been turned out of office because they don't deserve to remain in office when they behave like legislative bodies. If they want to be in the legislature, let them run for the legislature. That's my view. Um, but one of the things that I think is ought to be becoming readily apparent to people all over the country is that the election laws, what the process is, actually dictates the outcome. And in way too many states, what's happened is that we have watched over the years as uh, left-wing billionaire donors have have invested many billions of dollars into basically changing the election systems of state after state after state and pouring money into election official training so that making them come to believe in, I will tell you, all of the national organizations, of uh, the National Association of Secretaries of State, the National Association of Election Officials, they have been fed a steady dogma for more than a decade or longer that their job is to help disadvantaged voters turn out. And what that translates to is the use of our tax dollars now to uh, turn election offices into voter turnout machines, but only not everywhere, not about, you know, turning out college students on campus, putting voting roving vans in uh, that happened in state after state uh, where there would be vans that would go to college campuses so that there they'd be getting uh, and they and they had adopted same day registration. So they could herd college kids to get in line and register to vote in one line and then go vote in the next line. And they had big signs up saying um, elected officials decide abortion about abortion rights and election officials. I've seen the pictures. Election officials uh, decide about climate change. And um, so, you know, they didn't have those roving vans, say, out in rural areas to help those people vote because. They don't tend to vote for Democrats. They didn't have those roving vans, say, at the technical schools or at the plant gate. Um, there was a time when the Democratic Party uh, and their allies would have had those roving vans at uh, at industrial plants, you know, or manufacturing plants. They don't do that anymore. So they're they are using the election offices and very in many many states to uh, target and turn out certain groups of people to vote 
And then they have these procedures that have been written into the law that allow things such as, oh gosh, where to begin, allow, uh, allow for the massive numbers of voting by mail. And I don't care what state it is, if you have unrestricted, no excuse, absentee voting, you are what you are doing and what happens as a result is that you have unsupervised voting. You don't have the voting taking place in an open and transparent manner where you have observers appointed by the Democratic Party, observers appointed by the Republican Party, keeping each other honest and serving as the eyes of the voters, uh, the citizens, in in the polling location. Well, that doesn't happen anymore because so much of the voting takes place behind closed doors and where the secret ballot can't be protected where the vulnerable, most vulnerable in our society can be pressured and their votes can literally be stolen from them, whether they live in a nursing home or a group home or a homeless shelter. And that's what's been happening. It's happening more and more. And I can go into detail about problems in Arizona and problems in Nevada, problems in Pennsylvania, problems in Michigan. And the fact is that once you get that all-mail voting and moving more and more to, to, to voting by mail, uh, it makes it very difficult for conservatives to ever win those elections again. And that's what's happened in Washington state. It's what's happened in Oregon. It's happened in California. They've added additional things that have destroyed the uh, integrity of the election process. It's what's happened in Nevada. It's happened in Arizona. And until we as a nation and people state by state wake up and start saying, we've got to do something about this because it isn't about convenience. It is about saving the country and having an open and transparent and lawful election process. And we are not seeing that in state after state again. There's been progress made since 2020 in some of the states. Uh, that that uh, has been the report. But here's a poll from Rasmussen that was conducted on November 8th, Election Day, and November 9th. A poll conducted during and after the 2022 midterm elections found that a majority of U.S. likely voters believe cheating probably affected the outcome of some of the elections this year, it states. Rasmussen reports surveyed 1,000 Americans on November 8th and 9th, both online and by phone, with election-related questions, including how likely is it that the outcome of some of the elections this year will be affected by cheating. According to a report released by Monday, 57% of those surveys said that they think it is likely that cheating affected election outcomes, including 30% who believe that it is very likely. 40% of the respondents indicated they do not believe cheating is likely to have affected election results, including 18% who believe it is not at all likely. These are the highest numbers we've seen when considering cheating in midterm cycles. So, you know, Cleta, obviously Americans are, they know that cheating's going on. You know, it's funny. Uh, when you you know the left says, "Oh, election denier," and prove it that there's voter fraud. Well, you know our organization <laughs> launched a statewide election um, uh, survey and and audit of the elections in 2012 because there was suspicion act suspicious activity in 2012. Barack Obama won that year the presidential election, and we got reports in our office. And I got a call from the Secretary of State when we released a statement that we were going to c- conduct a statewide citizens audit as an organization. And again, this was led with volunteers and just folks who worked the polls and uh, basically voters across the state, and we would start taking in affidavits. And he says, Chris, what's going on? I said, I don't know, John, but we're getting a lot of reports here. 
and we're gonna we're gonna follow up. I'll get back to you as to what our findings are. And so uh, we were even commanded by commended by a far leftist liberal in one of the committees before the Ohio legislature. She said, "Well, you told the story both left and right of of people that were intimidated by the polls and also by suspicious activity and voter fraud." I said, "Look, we were just going to release the findings." From that, we did have election reform here in Ohio. That's why we probably don't have the problems that other states have, because the people did do what you're saying. They took it upon themselves. At that time, we had something called Golden Week. It was one full week of open voting, which depicts exactly what you explained, is where you could register and vote on the same day. That does not happen in Ohio. We reduced early voting down from 35 days to 28 days, and then uh, even in that, uh, you know, if you voting absentee, uh, if you if if you don't fill out all the specific information, you don't have time to go back in this 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 term curing the ballot. Yeah. Look, if, if right. you screw up on your ballot, that's too bad. Guess what? It may yeah. not count if you don't get all the right. information right. And so that's the way we do it here in Ohio. I suspect that's what they're doing in Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and these other states where they had where the red wave did appear. Uh, okay, but for the most part. But in these other states where the, the, the Democrats control, the same kind of nefarious activity that took place in 2020 happened again. What happened, Cleta? Why weren't we able to make any headways in those states? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, in some states it's because there was a, uh, a Democratic legislature. In other states there was maybe a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor. So you had a situation. Pennsylvania is a good case in point. Pennsylvania up until 2018, had one of the best election codes in the country. It was, and they were, they kept being told that they were out of date, that this was, uh, that this wasn't a modern election code. Well, that isn't true. You had basically, they didn't have any early voting, and you, oh no, everybody voted on election day in person, and the only people who were allowed to vote by absentee were people who uh, were literally absent. They couldn't get to the polls on election day, or they. Uh, or they were out of the jurisdiction on election day. And so you had a much reduced volume of this uh, voting by mail. And the signature matching requirement was one that they literally had monitors in the county election offices so that people from both political parties, all campaigns, they could go in and they could look at the envelopes that had come in and, um, and they, could, they could themselves check the signatures. It wasn't just the election workers, that you had citizen observers. And in 2010, in Bucks County, there were a group of volunteers who found what they thought looked like suspicious signatures. And it turns out that they ended up sequestering those ballots. They arrested the chief of staff for a congressional, uh, uh, a member of Congress, uh, who was a campaign manager who had, who had hatched and was uh, implementing a, a, a fake absentee balloting scheme. There's no way that happens today. Not the fact that there isn't a scheme. There's no way citizens can track and observe it. They, there's the volume, the sheer volume of absentee ballots makes it virtually impossible for election administrators to actually verify the identity of those who vote by mail. And what happened in Pennsylvania was that the state, the Republican state legislature uh, threw in with the Democratic governor and passed a law that became effective for the 2020 election, which now has unrestricted absentee v- voting by mail. 
And they did that because they were worried that with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, they needed to get rid of a statutory provision that uh, had straight party, straight ticket voting. They didn't want people, they thought that Donald Trump was going to be a liability to them, which he wouldn't have been, he wasn't to them. So they agreed to have no excuse absentee voting, but they still had the signature verification, right? So in September of 2020, the Secretary of State sent out a memo to all the counties in Pennsylvania and said, you no longer have to, uh, because of COVID, you don't have to match the signatures any longer. Well, the Republicans sued, and guess what? The Democrat-controlled state Supreme Court agreed that to just disregard the statute. So now there's no verification. The, the Secretary of State's office reported three weeks before the election that they had sent out over 250,000 absentee ballots that had not been verified. So then citizens started calling the county election offices to say, these have been sent out, but how are you going? And this, well, let me just say this, the Secretary of State said, oh, well, those will all be verified before they're actually counted. They'll be verified when they come back in before they're actually tabulated. And um, so volunteers started calling the county offices, and some counties didn't respond. Some counties said, well, we, we don't do any verifying, or we try to, we fix it, and we just count it anyway. And some people said, well, we don't even try to fix it. We just count it. So that's what's happening in Pennsylvania. And well, it in, is in a addition, nightmare. Well, it, absolutely. And all the early voting in Pennsylvania. So here's what the Democrats are doing by banking the vote. So before the uh, debate between uh, Fetterman and Oz on October 23rd, of which uh, John Fetterman obviously is not uh, competent to serve as a U.S. senator, he has some issues. He has health issues. That was evident in that debate. It would have it would have uh, shifted votes away from him. However. The Democratic Party made sure that already a million votes or more were banked already. Right. And so the, these people had already voted. But here's the problem with that, Cleta. Uh, my son, who served in the military in Iraq and five years in the 82nd Airborne, he has a lot of uh, veteran friends. He talks to them. A number of them are in Pennsylvania. They said, John, when we went in to vote, we were told that we already voted. This is in 2020. And he said oh, it's yeah. happening again in the midterms. And he said, what do you mean I voted? He says, it says here that you've already voted. People are voting for other people. This early voting is allowing that fraud to take place. This has been our yeah. argument for years. It's absolutely happening. And then, so people have to verify to see if their ballots were actually already cast. And in some cases, like in Arizona, there's a situation uh, where these machines that had a catastrophic failure rate on Election Day, your thoughts about that in Arizona? Well, and remember, it wasn't the voting machines on election day. It was printers because what they set right? up, what they, well, no, it was just the printers. Here's what they did <laughs> because they have, we've got, remember when we all used to vote in our precinct near our home? Well, okay. Now they say, no, 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 that's too inefficient. So now what we, they have set up in, in places like Maricopa County are these, uh, big voting centers. These are not uh, your precinct polling places. These are large voting centers. And if you live in Maricopa County, you can go to any voting center. So what does that mean? They have to program and put in, you know, the information. And then it's like Starbucks. You know, then you get a, a customized ballot. 
based on where you live and what school board member you are voting for and what county commissioner and what, you know, state house and U.S. house and all. And so what happened was that they went out. And by the way, these are the, the, the guy who's the, from the county supervisor who's in charge of the election was also in charge in 2020. And he did everything he could to stop that audit and said it was terrible and did sabotaged it, did everything he could to do that. So they went out, these geniuses went out and they bought all new printers. And it was the printer settings that caused the printers not to be able to print the customized ballots. And that happened all over the county. And so the lines became one hour, two hours, 20% of, by 10 o'clock in the morning, um, 20% of the printers were not working. And they couldn't figure out how to get them to work. And one of the things that would ha- that happened was that people came in and they registered, they checked in, and they were standing in line, standing in line. And then the election officials would say, well, you can go, you know, you can go to another. We hear that the printers are working at this other voting location. Go there. So they would go there. And when they got there, were told, well, you've already voted because they didn't check out. Nobody told them they had to check out of the first location in order to not appear to have voted. So you talk about disenfranchisement, and that was happening where? In the most Republican uh, parts of Maricopa County. Well, that's and you right. Tell me that that, you tell me that's, not, that's a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think so. so. That, absolutely not. And again, uh, there's been a lot of uh, work that was done in Arizona, but obviously... Uh, with the Secretary of State, which is now Katie Hobbs. Uh, she didn't recuse herself. She oversaw the election for her election for governor. Is there a good chance that Carrie Lake is going to be able to challenge and get a recount on the votes in Arizona? Well, the truth of the matter is I don't think a recount does much good because you have so many ballots that are already in the system that shouldn't be in the system. You have all these people. I, I, I suggested to them you know, over the weekend that they needed to start gathering affidavits of people who, with their experiences and what they were told and, and whether they even got to vote. And, you know, so those people would end up having to go vote uh, provisionally and they don't even know whether their votes were even counted. So I think that there needs to be a new election, but frankly, I think that the Democratic, I mean, the Republican outgoing governor, the Republican outgoing uh, attorney general, they should they should be standing up and saying, this isn't right, and we don't have a dog in this fight because we weren't on the ballot in November, but the people of Arizona deserve a free, fair, honest, and lawful election. But both of them have completely checked out, and so they're doing nothing. They're doing well, nothing. I'll tell you, Carrie Lake isn't going to be somebody who gives up the fight, so I'm sure that she and her team are going to be fighting. I hope Lita- so. Lita, thank you so much for joining me today. Great information. We appreciate it so much, and thank you for all that you do. God bless you. Hey, Chris, can I get people to come to our website and sign up to help us in our election integrity movement? Who'scounting.us. Who'scounting.us. Come and join our election integrity network. Absolutely. Thank you. Who'scounting.org? Dot U.S. Dot U.S. Who'scounting.us. Thank you, Cleta. God bless you. God bless you, too, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. 
To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.